Hello, and welcome to the Frontier Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading information and advisory services partner for emerging market executives. We partner with business leaders at over 230 multinationals by providing them with advisory support, information assets, and consulting services that help inform and power their emerging markets growth strategy. The focus of today's podcast is a discussion regarding FSG's current outlook for the EMEA region. My name is Richard Leggett, and I'm the CEO of Frontier Strategy Group, and I'm joined today from FSG's London headquarters by Martina Bozagieva, FSG's Director of Research for EMEA, and the author of our latest quarterly EMEA Leadership Briefing Report. As a reminder, this research and all of our insights are available to FSG clients via our FrontierView platform. Martina, welcome. Thanks for having me. We have a, a lot to cover, so why don't we jump in and get started? And I wanted to start uh, maybe at the 30,000 foot level by talking about how the EMEA markets have been trending over the past several months. The FSG forecasts have remained fairly stable, uh, although some movements between sub regions with an improvement in Western mm-hmm. Europe, but a downtick in MENA. However, it seems like there has been broadly an improvement in market conditions and growth lately. And I wanted to get your opinion uh, how sustainable this is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's true. We have seen some positive signs, especially coming from the Eurozone, and we've actually improved our forecast for Western Europe since December. So it's moved up from 1.3% on average for this year, GDP growth, to one6 And a lot of it is actually the UK, where uh, post-Brexit we had pretty negative expectations, and since then we've seen stronger performance of the UK economy, and so that has moved the averages a bit. Uh, but it's coming from other parts of Western Europe as well, like Germany, uh, France, Spain, where we've seen improving economic conditions. Um, the rest of the region, we've seen a bit of a downward revision. Uh, in MENA, it's gone down from 3.1 to 2.4 um, on average GDP growth for this year. And, and some of that is just driven by um, the transitions that those economies are going through in terms of subsidy removals, fiscal changes, um, and also Egypt, which had a very big devaluation. As, as a result, expectations for that market have changed. Um, but there have been some good news as well. So we've seen a bit of an uptick in oil prices um, in the first few months of the year, which were supporting commodity exporters. Russia seems to be crawling out of recession. Central Europe is performing quite strongly. So, so there are definitely pockets of, pockets of positive news out of the region, but there are also a lot of risks, and they're all to the downside, unfortunately. Um, so we're not expecting a rapid rebound necessarily, uh, and we think it's also important for regional leadership teams to monitor the external environment very carefully uh, because those downside risks could materialize through the rest of this year. I want to spend uh, the rest of our time uh, diving into a number of the key trends, risks, and opportunities. But before I do that, I, I think we, we, we need to spend a, a moment on, uh, on Brexit given last week's triggering of uh, artic- Article 50 and uh, the two-year clock es- essentially has started ticking, and, and there's obviously a lot of noise and cross-currents going on in the, in the media. So I think it's always important uh, for our clients that we, we cut through the noise and provide the signal value. And so I wanted to ask you just at the outset here, Martina, what are the most important items that our clients should be focused on over the near term? Um, the UK is really behaving like an emerging market, and from a planning perspective, it's one of the hardest markets in EMEA right now. Um, so it's certainly a difficult job that multinationals have in managing it now that we've entered this two-year negotiating process. So there are a couple of things that are important as companies are 
reflecting Brexit in their plans. The first one is that um, their customers, especially business customers, may already be starting to take action in relation to Brexit before they see the outcome of the negotiations. Um, it's a slow movement, but we know a lot of businesses already have uh, plans and they're starting to do things like moving staff out of the UK or perhaps uh, changing their investment plans. Uh, they're not in a position to afford to wait until years from now to make some of these decisions. So while Brexit hasn't fully happened yet, uh, business is already reacting to it, and that's something that companies selling and working with businesses should be uh, starting to adapt to as well. Um, the other thing is that the longer uh, the longer down the time horizon you look, the worse the growth outlook looks. Um, so we are not actually at the bottom of what the growth is going to look like. The damage to the economy starts to become greater as we progress down the medium term time horizon. So forecasts going through 2018, 19, 20 should be reflecting that outlook. Um, and then in the meantime, we're probably going to be seeing a lot of volatility. There are still a lot of unanswered questions around the structure of the deal uh, that the UK is going to have with the EU, uh, questions around sovereignty, the second Scottish referendum. So it's going to be a pretty bumpy ride, and companies need to be prepared for that, um, not just from an exchange rate perspective, but just from an operational and planning perspective as well. And then the key thing uh, which we really want to drive home is that um, the timeline for negotiating a new deal between the UK and the EU is completely impossible. Um, it would be an incredible miracle if they were to actually be able to get it done in two years. And so uh, there are a bunch of options for what may happen in practice. The possibility of uh, returning to WTO terms is a real one. Um, and uh, that uncertainty is going to become much more obvious as we go through these negotiations. So um, a lot of very careful planning techniques from emerging markets actually need to be applied to the UK right now. All right, and we'll stay on top of these uh, of these events and signposts and, mm -hmm. and continue to provide visibility to our clients. But let's talk about some of the trends that you you talk about in this latest uh, EMEA leadership briefing report. And, and you break them into internal regional issues and external regional issues. So why don't we start with the internal, which uh, in, in a nutshell is all about political risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there are a lot of elections coming up. And... Uh, Obviously, they don't always turn out to be surprises like we have had uh, most recently. So we shouldn't uh, assume that just because Brexit and uh, Trump's election happened, all the other elections are going to go in the direction of uh, populism. Uh, but there are a number of them. And so those could all cause a couple of things. One is meaningful uh, changes in government policy uh, or an extreme market reaction. And so when we think about the next three months, we have the French elections, uh, we have elections in Iran for president, quite important. Uh, just about a week or so from now, we have um, a referendum in Turkey over the presidential system. So these are some of the high-profile ones just in the next few months. And then there are some lower-profile ones in Lebanon and Algeria as well that are going to be happening. And so uh, it's important to reflect those in uh, in planning and also to make sure that partners and teams on the ground are ready to react if the election result were to be a surprise in the negative direction. Uh, but change uh, in operating conditions uh, could come as a result of these elections. And so those are things to monitor very carefully in the next few months. Martina, can we draw any conclusions from the Dutch elections, which uh, seem to be uh, a little bit of a rejection of populism uh, or the populism momentum? Is there any conclusions we can draw uh, across the rest of the region in these upcoming elections? 
I think the conclusion is that it's not a simple story, right? So I think that you know two instances of populism um, in the U.S. and in the U.K. definitely demonstrate a trend, but the trend is not universal. And the structure of the elections also matters, whereas in Holland you had many, many parties that were competing that splintered the vote and did not allow voters to actually gain in prominence, where you have two-way elections. Uh, so choosing between two options or two candidates, that's where a very small margin can make a huge difference in the outcome. And that's where you've got a higher risk um, in terms of things going in a direction that supports populism. There is no question that there is a very big wave of populist pressure on policy right now. Even in markets that are not likely to skew populists, like in Germany, for example. So whether or not uh, you see populists elected to power, they're already influencing the agendas of ruling parties, including in Holland. Um, and so that is the kind of thing that multinationals can start to really reflect in their expectations about government policy. Um, but I think the key here is uh, not to uh, not to give up, give into uh, panic and, and news headlines because every country has a slightly different situation and you will be seeing variations in the outcomes as a result of that. And the implications from a business perspective really boils down to, in the most immediate sense, uh, what happens in terms of currency volatility, pricing, yeah. cost, mm -hmm. cost and earnings assumptions, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's also affecting confidence and in investment decisions as well. I mean, we see that in our client base as well, where uncertainty about the outcome of an important election might delay investment decisions or might scale down the types of investments that companies are making. So it's felt quite strongly in the B2B sector. And then if you were expecting there may be a change in government policy, then it's felt by companies that sell into the government as well. Well, sticking with the risk theme and, uh, and also uncertainty, uh, your report also highlights two external sets of risk areas. Uh, and I promise we will get to opportunities here shortly, but I think it is important. So it wouldn't be a discussion about uh, ambiguity and uncertainty without talking about uh, mm -hmm. Trump. And so we'll start there. Uh, but you also highlight China. So let's start with uh, mm -hmm. Trump and the latest, your latest assessment uh, as we approach the 100-day mark since inauguration. Yeah, so the actual impact of Trump on this region so far hasn't fully materialized. Uh, a lot of it is uncertain, and most of the potential impact is on the downside. So we think of it in a couple of ways. One is in terms of uh, the effect of a stronger dollar. Um, and obviously now with uh, some of the recent developments with Obamacare, then there, there are some question marks about the ability of the U.S. economy to grow substantially on the back of a stimulus and the tax reform, uh, if that doesn't happen, then maybe the impact of the strong dollar on the region would be smaller. Uh, but if we're sure, it's causing currency volatility, uh, which is uh, affecting a number of markets across the region. Uh, there are two looming risks. One is around trade, where we haven't seen real action yet from the Trump administration, but uh, there's no question that there will be something coming out of it that would uh, perhaps affect this region. Um, and the second one is around foreign policy, which is also quite uncertain. So while so far we haven't felt it too much, um, we shouldn't assume that this will continue to be the case. Uh, two months from now, we could be talking about all the big disruption that came from a policy announcement by Trump or a tweet. Um, and so we should remain vigilant in terms of the potential spillover. Um, but so far, it remains extremely uncertain. Okay. 
Um, something else that I think is uh, feels like it's a little bit out on the horizon, but you point to its importance is for the uh, EMEA executives and also the regional executives to keep uh, one eye very closely focused on China. And mm -hmm. when it comes to China, how should our EMEA clients think about exposure of their portfolio to potential risk or spillover, and how real is that uh, this year? Mm -hmm. So there are three main channels in which EMEA is exposed to China. One is through trade. So you can think about um, some of the commodity exporting countries in the region, whether that's Saudi, South Africa, Angola, that have very significant direct trade with China. And so when uh, China's infrastructure spending slows down or construction sector um, kind of cools down, uh, those countries feel that immediately. The second one is through uh, China's uh, importance as a commodity consumer. So uh, when demand from China falls, that tends to move commodity prices. So whether that's, again, oil, metals, and others, uh, even countries that don't directly export to China feel that through the effect on prices globally. And then the third one is through financial markets. So if there is a panic over China's currency or uh, fears over China hard landing, that tends to cause a flow of capital back to um, safe assets and tends to cause depreciation of a number of emerging market currencies. And that can be anything from the Turkish lira to the Russian ruble to the South African rand. Um, so China is a very, very real risk to this region. And uh, now we have two events, each of which could be potentially causing a slowdown in China. One is actual inefficiencies and, and challenges within the Chinese economy itself. And the second one could be triggered by aggressive trade policy by the Trump administration and the trade war between China and the U.S. Either one of these would um, have significant repercussions for the EMEA region through these three main channels. Um, let's turn to some bright spots. What, what are the bright spots in your view in the region? Are there any segments or countries or industries where you're seeing, seeing more positive momentum and dynamics that our clients can take advantage of? Mm -hmm. So there are, there, are, there are some regions that are perhaps not top of mind because they tend to be a bit smaller, uh, but where you see positive growth fundamentals or more reduced exposure to some of these broader risks. So we will highlight um, East African markets like Kenya or Ethiopia, Tanzania, Francophone West African markets like Ivory Coast, Central Europe is doing very strongly as well. Um, so there certainly are still markets which collectively can help to counterbalance some of the weaknesses in the larger EMEA players. And then also I think more importantly, there is a set of opportunities that are now emerging um, that are created by the changes happening in the region, especially as governments are um, shifting their fiscal positions and trying to go for efficiency. Everybody is feeling cost pressures. And so anyone who can tap into that need uh, to greater efficiency, greater cost savings, uh, perhaps better use of technology to do so, uh, can actually see a significant amount of additional opportunity for their business. And so a lot of this is thinking about what do customers need and how are customers' needs changing, because they're changing across a bunch of different markets in the region pretty simultaneously. Then trying to adapt your products and offering to those evolving needs, uh, that's where you can actually create some additional opportunity for your business, whether or not the market itself is expanding very quickly. One of the markets that you highlight in the report, uh, which I found interesting, was uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, where we've seen uh, a lot of issues out of South Africa and Nigeria over the last uh, 18 to 24 months. 
and yet we're highlighting it um, that there could be some interesting uh, moments of opportunity to start focusing on in the region, partially because it's fairly insulated from uh, from any impact uh, coming out of the U.S., but also because you see improvement. And maybe you could just talk mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, you recently had a client uh, event and a bunch of meetings there, and maybe you could talk about some of those key takeaways and where you see opportunity. Yeah, yeah, we had um, we had an event in Johannesburg uh, recently bringing together a um, cross-industry group of multinationals. And there are a number of things that we saw there. First is that um, there is still a very significant focus on the big markets. South Africa and Nigeria were top of mind. Both of them are going through some macroeconomic difficulties, some currency volatility, et cetera. Um, but the clients in the room were really thinking about, in this environment, how do we win? And so actually a lot of that was about identifying new customer segments, adapting the product offering, improving the efficiency of the channel. So they were seeing opportunities to improve their execution and in doing so to actually create additional demand for their products. Um, so it, it was certainly not a defeatist mood of, uh, you know, we have these problems and, and maybe we're not interested in these markets anymore. The interest was as strong as ever. Um, additionally, uh, there was interest in some of the additional buckets of demand, smaller markets, faster growing, maybe a little bit less top of mind, uh, that are starting to become more interesting. So we've seen huge interest in Ethiopia, uh, quite significant interest in Cote d'Ivoire, Tanzania is coming up on the radar. So you start to see markets that were perhaps tier two or even tier three for multinationals now becoming more prominent than interesting investment destinations. Um, but a lot of this is now saying not just market entry, but how do we actually improve our execution in these markets? And so um, companies are looking to introduce new products, tailor their products to local needs and purchasing power, and then especially getting the capabilities of their channels right. So making sure that local partners and distributors can help with demand generation, marketing, identifying new customer segments. So go from resellers and logistics suppliers to really strategic partners for them. And I think there's some really interesting poll data that you collected from the event uh, regarding investment plans, regarding where mm-hmm. uh, where our multinational clients are prioritizing in terms of capability building, uh, in addition to uh, in, in addition to markets. And it, it seems like Kenya is everybody's favorite uh, investment mm-hmm. uh, priority. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, a quarter of the clients said that um, Nigeria is their biggest growth opportunity in 2017, which is pretty significant given the, the market is in recession and it has massive forex shortages. Um, and then, yes, Kenya is definitely top of mind, but I think that also comes with much higher competition. Um, so while everybody has the same idea, I think how you differentiate yourself against competitors uh, is going to become more of a problem. Absolutely. I want to wrap up, Martina, as we always do, with just some of the specific action uh, that you would action areas that you would recommend to, you know, putting your client hat on and you're running a portfolio across the EMEA region. What what are the action areas you would focus uh, on right now? Mm-hmm. So I would suggest three main things. Uh, first of all, on the risk side, assess your vulnerability to China and have a clear idea of which pieces of your portfolio in terms of markets and customer segments um, and operations could be most exposed to a hard landing in China. Because if, if this event were to start to take place, there wouldn't be enough time to react. And in terms of scale of disruption, it would be probably just as big as the oil price crash. 
which was highly, highly disruptive. So, so that's something to keep in mind at the most senior level in the organization in EMEA. The second thing is to actually pressure test 2018 assumptions. We're seeing companies starting to assume a further uptick in demand and growth next year, but all these downside risks point us to be a little bit more conservative about 2018. Um, and so I think it's, it's actually the right time to start thinking very critically about what does the plan say about 2018 and are those things realistic or are they based on pretty optimistic assumptions? And then what do we need to do this year in order to position ourselves for strong 2018 that is not dependent on market conditions? but it's dependent on things that we can control. Um, and then the third one is uh, much more tactical, but not to delay investments in partner capabilities. Because if you do get disrupted, whether that's by Trump or by elections or something else, uh, it would be too late to invest in partner capabilities on things like demand generation or solution sales. And that's actually exactly when you're going to need your partners to be most sophisticated um, and to also be able to execute to a high standard to give you flexibility in a volatile environment. So the time is now to be making those kinds of investments. Excellent. Martina, thank you so much for this interesting discussion. I encourage all of our listeners to read the report. It's chock full of uh, very valuable insights, information, uh, peer uh, opinion, and actions. As a reminder to all of our clients, you can speak with Martina or any member of the global FSG research team at any time by simply reaching out via your client relationship director. You can also access this full analysis and all of FSG's content and data on the Frontier View platform. For now, this concludes our podcast. Until next time, we wish you great outperformance across your emerging market portfolio.